Hello, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend about us. Now here's the show. A reporter was live on TV when a shockwave from yesterday's earthquake toppled buildings around him in eastern Turkey. It's Tuesday, February 7th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, the country's biggest movie theater chain wants to price seats at the cinema the way airlines do. And the new head of the American Psychological Association weighs in on the state of mental health in this country. But first, more on yesterday's earthquake on the border of Turkey and Syria. More than 5,000 people are confirmed dead so far, as search and rescue teams look for survivors. The World Health Organization predicts the death toll could climb above the 1999 earthquake in Turkey that killed more than 17,000 people. Sixty years before that, in 1939, an earthquake claimed more than 30,000 lives. There are several fault lines in Turkey that make earthquakes common, at least on the timescale of the Earth. Mustafa Erdik studies earthquakes in Istanbul at Boazici University, and he told Scott Tong that this latest quake happened along the East Anatolian Fault. And there's a constant push out of the tectonic plates, and that push stores energy in these faults. And that, that energy has reached to such a point that the, the fault or the crank cannot take it anymore and just release itself. When it releases itself, it's released big energy. It's like a spring. You load the spring, and when it comes to a point, you cannot load it anymore. It breaks and then releases all the energy that you have loaded in. That's what happens. You know that that will take place, but you never know when that will be. Many tall buildings in Turkey, 12 floors or higher, have collapsed. Is that because of the size of the earthquake or more the strength of the buildings? I understand many were built before a new building code in the year 2000. Well, exactly what you say, both, I would say. The earthquake was a strong one, and most of these structures were not built to conform to the code. They couldn't take care of this earthquake. Mm. A magnitude 7.8 earthquake is, is very rare, I gather. But as far as damage, does it also matter how deep or shallow the earthquake is? Well, strongly earthquakes are usually shallow earthquakes. They take place within the probably 20, 30 kilometers of the fault. And then obviously the, the, the depth of the earthquake or the where it originates from is important for the damage because it creates much more damage in the epicentral area. But if the earthquake is deeper, it can go to further distances, but with less energy. I understand. So so in this case, is this an an earthquake that was very shallow and more geographically focused? Yeah, I would say so. I would say so. It is similar in that sense to 1906 earthquake in California. Oh, in Northern California. We have read about continuous aftershocks uh, in Turkey. How dangerous could they be? And could they be far away from the original epicenter? Well, they usually line up along the fault line. They could be away from the original epicenter. But 
for such fault ruptures, which is about 200 kilometers, the epicenter loses meaning essentially. The whole earthquake area is the fault itself. And then it is scattered along the fault. They are very dangerous for search and rescue efforts because, you know, when you are search and rescue, the structure could be in a delicate balance and then the structure could collapse, endangering the lives of the search and rescue people. Hmm. And could these aftershocks last for weeks? Well, major aftershocks probably, when I say major, magnitude 5 and above, could go for about two or three months. But if you go to minor aftershocks, say magnitude 3, they can go years. Professor Erdik, you are an earthquake scientist, knowing this was always possible. But as a person, what is it like, how does it feel to see this devastation in your own homeland, your people? Well, it's terrible. I mean, obviously, I mean, the earthquakes are such things that you have to be proactive, not retroactive. And now we are in the retroactive phase. So what we are trying to do, search and rescue as to save lives after the earthquake, that's not a very good position to be in. I think we should be proactive and take precautions before the earthquake so that the, you know, collapse of the building will not be a usual thing, but it would rather be an exception. So that's, I mean, we, we are trying to reach that goal always. Otherwise, loss of human lives are the things that you cannot bring back. And anything that you cannot bring back is, is too bad to have. We have been speaking to Mustafa Erdik, Emeritus Professor of Earthquake Engineering at Boazachi University in Istanbul. Thank you for your time. Uh, you're welcome. I'm a pretty adaptable guy. I don't really even mind the middle seat on an airplane. But one thing I'm particular about is getting a good spot when I go to the movies. So I'm not super excited about this next story, to tell you the truth. After the break, Scott and friend of the show, Robin Farzad, discuss a new proposal for dynamic pricing at the cinema. Yes, you'd pay more for seats in the middle of the theater than way up front. Stick around. When you go to the movies, where do you sit? I'm a middle-to-back type. And it turns out AMC Theaters plans to charge more for those tickets. The cheaper coach section, as it were, is the front row and other less ideal spots. That gives Robin Farzad a lot to talk about. We have him now. He's host of Public Radio's Full Disclosure. Robin, we are now boarding Zone 7 at the AMC Theater. <laughs> what is the big business idea here, these tiered ticket prices? I think just to squeeze more money out of a declining box office opportunity in general, we know that they had a near-death experience during the pandemic. Then they became mm-hmm. a meme stock and they started marketing their popcorn AMC at grocery stores and I remember. Walmart and everything. And now the stock has fallen back down to earth and they're trying to, you know, they haven't seen a full-fledged resurgence of kind of pre-streaming box office traffic. And so they want to squeeze more revenue out of it. You hit it on the head with the mention of coach class, not unlike the airlines. Time was we used to have economy class versus business and first class, and now even economy class is broken up into several, you know, a la carte tiers. Allow me, Robin, to read the corporate speak from the company. This plan, quote, more closely aligns AMC seat pricing to that of many other entertainment venues, offering experienced-based pricing and another way for moviegoers to find value at the movies. That's brilliant. It's not higher prices. It's finding value. Surely everybody's going to love this. 
You got to love that boilerplate. But look, shed a tear for them because they have two major things going against them. Uh, the average age of the United States male prostate, forgive me for saying that. And two, the fact that that average male prostate cannot you know, go in and deal with a 64-ounce Pepsi uh, for $12. Uh, in other words, people are watching things at home, the streaming age, and Hollywood is dealing with that consternation right now. And these guys are saying, if Hollywood is not going to give us the premier product, we have to do the best we can with what we have right now. And that means squeeze more out of the current box office that we have. And no one is happy with this. Robin, you just turned this into a medical conversation. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't go to med school. My mom is still upset about that. <laughs> As is mine. Okay. Is this just the state of America, America Inc., Robin? You, you can pay more for the faster lane on the highway. You can pay more to cut the airport line, more for the better hockey seats. And now this tiered that economic is. life. That is, and I think it's cynical. It, it does remind me also of shrinkflation. You can see press releases from Tropicana or Dove Soap or anything when they redesign something and it's smaller and you're getting maybe 20% less product and they're saying, we're serving the customer, we're giving choice and experience. And in reality, it's just a revenue grab. It's just trying to squeeze more out of less. And I think people are, are increasingly fed up with it. As you saw the online reaction, time was, you know, you <laughs> get in early and you could get those seats. If you were a seventh grader wanting to sneak into an R-rated movie, you could get those front row seats. Now somebody is putting in extra or, or reserving them, and it's it's infuriated people and making them think even thrice about going back to the movie theater. And quickly, other theater companies are also struggling struggling for these reasons you mentioned. Are we going to see more experimenting? I don't know. Free biscotti? I think you, you have to innovate or experiment or skimp or die in this case, and AMC being the kind of the weak leader, I think unfortunately all of them, like the airlines, are going to follow suit. Robin Farzad is host of Public Radio's Full Disclosure. Dr. Dr. Robin Farzad, Scott. Robin, have a good day. Thank you. Coming up, Deepa Fernandez speaks with the new president of the country's largest professional organization of psychologists about the role that faith can play in therapy and why the American Psychological Association recommends Beyonce for your mental health. That's after the break. The American Psychological Association has a new president, and in her new role, Tama Bryant wants to bring psychology to the people. That includes those who may not have access to a therapist. The stakes are high as Americans face a number of mental health challenges. There's the trauma of racism, dozens of mass shootings, the ripple effects of a pandemic, and the complicated feelings that surround everything from the economy to climate change young people are especially struggling to cope. Tamer Bryant is a clinical psychologist with a PhD at Pepperdine University where she directs the Culture and Trauma Research Laboratory. And she hosts the Homecoming Mental Health Podcast. Professor Bryant, welcome to Here and Now. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be with you. So you're leading the nation's psychologists during a really stressful and deeply painful time in our history. How dire is the mental health crisis right now? People are really struggling on a number of fronts. There are so many different causes for our stress and anxiety, some still related to COVID-19, some people dealing with grief and mourning, others financial loss and strain, as well as the realities of racial stress and trauma. 
There is so much that is happening in our communities, our schools and families, and then nationally, of course. It is important for us to be in the forefront of providing services and also letting people know about mental health. Mm. You know, for those who don't know, you're also an ordained minister of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, and you are the fourth black woman and second minister to lead the APA in 130 years. What does that say to you about our openness to faith and psychology, perhaps working together? Yes, it is important progress that we're making in terms of recognizing the impact of spirituality and religion on diverse people's lives, that many people find communities of faith supportive, and we also recognize the realities of some having experienced religious abuse or harm in what was supposed to be sacred spaces. So we are attending much more to the need of psychologists and other mental health professionals to not ignore spirituality, but to talk with Mm. their clients about what that means to them and how it shapes the way they uh, cope with their lives, the way they make meaning from their lives, and for some people, how they recover from life's challenges. Mm, I mean, this this seems like a bit of a departure. It hasn't always been the way because there's been some conflict throughout history between religion and psychology and, and maybe the use of spirituality to help overcome mental health challenges. Definitely. And so when we think about uh, those divisions, we can uh, see really the distrust that has existed on both sides, uh, that some within faith communities discourage their members from seeking psychotherapy. Uh, Some would make the argument that if you're going to pray about it, why would you need to do anything else? And so really trying to Mm. put forward that message that it's not an either or, it's not a false choice. Uh, It is a false choice to say you have to either be a person of faith or utilize mental health services. Uh, And so we've been doing a lot more uh, bridge building respectfully uh, with communities of faith. And then I will also say on the psychology side that there have been those in our field who have been uh, dismissive or pathologizing of people um, who are spiritual or who are religious, um, whether it is from their own personal experiences with uh, negative encounters in that religious space Mm. or also being uh, sensitive or tuned into the experience of others. So it's important for us to hold that range where there it has been a place of harm for some and a place of strength for others. And we need to be open to hearing what people's experiences have been. Yeah. You know, um, Professor Bryant, you have been very open about your personal journey over the course of your life. You've overcome being evacuated from the civil war in Liberia and a sexual assault. How does your story inform your work in psychology? Yes, my experiences both with war and the sexual assault make me tune in to the silences, paying attention to who in the room has been overlooked or what are the issues that haven't been named because these traumas, whether war or sexual violence, uh, partner abuse, 
Uh, They are often experiences that people keep as secrets, but they really can uh, shatter someone's uh, meaning of life and of themselves. And so I pay attention even organizationally to what are our priorities that we want to continue, but then also in terms of uh, being expansive and transformative, what are the additional communities or issues that we really want to be tuned into Mm -hmm. and to highlight? I want to ask you just for a moment about young people, and we've heard a lot about what they've been going through post-pandemic, through the pandemic, post-pandemic, and, you know, parents might be seeing their children, young children, teenagers, moody, you know, depressed, maybe anxious. What advice do you have for parents who, who might be concerned that their child is struggling So for parents who are listening, I would say, one, it's important for us to normalize the conversation to, in a routine way, ask our children deeper questions. And if we just say, how was your day? Often we'll get a one-word answer. And I say this Mm -hmm. not only as a psychologist, but a Mm -hmm. mother of two. (laughs) And so, you know, we created kind of the format at dinner of saying, what was the best thing that happened today and what was the worst thing? And, you know, on most days, their worst thing is homework. But then there are some days where something else has happened or something else is on their mind. And not only do I ask them, but I also share my best and worst thing of the day. So I think our transparency can also help. Uh, so that they know uh, some days are difficult, right? Or some Mm -hmm. friendships or relationships that there can be stress and strain and that family is a place we can talk about it, provide support for each other. And then I would say really observing and knowing your children so that you can pay attention when there's been a change. And when there's been a change in their behavior or in their mood, to be able to have a direct conversation with them. Sometimes parents are afraid if I bring it up, it's going to make them depressed. But actually, our Mm. silence is what can leave them feeling isolated. And so we want to be mindful to be supportive so they will continue to see you as a safe place for them to share. This is so helpful. You know, and I wonder if this is kind of like I am the tip about the, the dinner table discussion. Is this kind of what you mean when you say your goal is to bring psychology to the people? Yes, it is to make it a part of our public conversation, our public discourse. So even this moment now is so important because it should never just be for the elite. Some people have the idea that that's for rich people, right? Um And it needs to be whatever your walk of life is around economics, around your race, your sexuality, your religion, your gender, uh, disability. We want to be mindful that each of us is worthy uh, of care, of respect, and of knowledge. Because when we share knowledge, people can be empowered. You know, I know there are many communities, I've heard it a lot in my life of, you know, therapy is is for certain people and, you know, you just, it's like a luxury. You just sit and talk about yourself. Can you tell me in a nutshell, why just, why talking, why going to therapy can really help through moments of crisis? Yes. Thank you so much for the question because some people will say, Uh, Therapy is for people who don't have friends, and that's not true. So Mm. therapy is not 
just like talking to another friend. Uh, it really is someone who is trained and who has had the experience uh, to recognize what are the strategies and the insights that can help you to be empowered uh, to really live your best life and also to heal from the wounds of the past or the present. And so it's helpful to go to a place where you will invest the time and the energy and really recognizing who you are and who you want to be and the steps to get there. Professor Brian, is there a song that we can go out on that you find calming, healing, inspiring in this moment? Yes, I love uh, hearing Beyonce sing, You Can't Break My Soul. Mm. Oh gosh, I'm almost about to bust out singing right now. <laughs> let's let's not do that. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's uplifting. And yes. To, yeah. I agree. I love it. I love oh, it. Good, good. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much, Tima Bryant, president of the American Psychological Association. We appreciate you joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Head to hereandnow.org for more stories, including an update from Ohio, where authorities conducted a controlled release of hazardous chemicals from a derailed train near the Pennsylvania border. Thousands of nearby residents had to evacuate. I did hear from one person who said, Sunday morning, local police, actually the local sheriff, had came to her knocking on her door and said, you know, you need to leave, and if you don't, we're going to come back with a body bag. Today's stories were produced by Kalyani Saxena, Thomas Danielian, and Ashley Locke. Our editors are Gabe Bullard, Peter O'Dowd, Jill Ryan, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Caleb Green and Max Liebman. Theme music by Max, me, and Mike Moschetto. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.